Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 46. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Well, thanks um, so much for that birthday surprise. Um, And I just need to out someone else as well. Jono and I share a birthday, and so if you see Jono around, where is Jono? Is he, is he he's serving? Okay, yep, well there you go, typical. He's serving our own Christ, but it's also his birthday as well. But uh, thank you so much for that. It's uh, a humbling privilege to be able to serve this community in this way. And, um, and I'm looking forward to this series leading into Christmas, and an opportunity to be thankful and to give God the thanks he deserves for, for providing so abundantly for us in so many ways. And it's apt that we kick this off uh, with, a, with thanking God for the people he provides in this church community. Now we, um, we call this series Thanks Be to God um, for a particular reason. The, the, uh, when I was at my grandmother's funeral, I actually had the privilege of reading the Bible. And at City Light, when we finished reading the Bible, we always finished just by saying this is the Word of God, because it is. But I finished the Bible reading, I said this is the Word of God, and then I went to take my leave, and the congregation responded, thanks be to God. And I'd never, I didn't know that was a thing. I'd, I didn't realize I'd activated a secret feature or something like that in the, in the group. And so I didn't really know what to do, but I just kind of kept walking. Like I didn't know if there was like a salute or something that, that went on the back of that. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing liturgy that the church has done uh, over decades and centuries as a way of responding to God's gift through His Word. And so my prayer is that this series will be a gift as we open God's Word. And this is what it's, what's going to happen week after week. Because we're leading up to Christmas and we don't want to miss Christmas, that is, we don't want it to come and go without us ever having given any deep thought to what it means that Jesus Christ became fully human, took on sinful flesh and died in our place. We don't want to miss that. So we're going to look at what He taught about and why we should be thankful for those things. And the section that we're going to be looking at today is on the church, on God's people. And we want to be thankful for these things because there are, there are a lot of reasons for genuine grief this year. And there are a lot of reasons to be legitimately maybe even angry this year. And this series is not about those things, not as a way of, of gaslighting you and pretending those don't exist. But there's been time and space over our sermon series to have engaged with those emotions But I think right now in December, coming up to Christmas, it's a fitting season to turn our hearts toward gratitude. And it's probably maybe a year more than others where that has been hard to come by. The things that are difficult are very clear and present to us. And the things that we should be thankful for can often just pass us by. And so we're going to be stopping, contemplating what Jesus taught on, and giving him thanks for these things. And the reason we're going to give him thanks for the church first is because often it can be a missed miracle. I was struck by this recently when I was thinking about this, watching something, that um, whenever I go to the beach, and I, I lo- in my old years, I didn't like the beach as a kid. I was a more suburban kid. I loved skateboarding, all that kind of stuff. I spent no time near the beach. But as I've gotten older, I just I love going to the beach. But I cannot tell you how much it awakens 
a childlike, almost tantrum-like disappointment when I get to the beach. And before I get there, I can already smell what's happening. And when I arrive, my fears are, are confirmed and I see seaweed. And I think, oh, like, what, what is the point? And you, you do that thing where you try and sort of, you brave it out and you kind of get in the water and you think, I'll just, I'll make a go of this. I'll make it work somehow. But you're in the water and you're like, oh, what's touching me? Is there a sea snake? Is that seaweed? What's going on? And so you just kind of, you, you tough it out. But in the end, it really kind of ruins your day. It's done. It's kind of like when you find a hair in your food. You can sort of power on, but in the end, you're like, it's over. I might as well just admit it. And so that's what happens to me when I get to the beach and there's seaweed. But then recently, Mel and I watched a little documentary called My Octopus Teacher. Has anyone seen that? Huge traction. Thanks, Kathy. One person. Maybe a lot of you out there watching online watch this thing. But it's, um, it's a documentary about a guy who, I think, he's look, I think the story is he's recovering from some kind of a burnout, moves to the coast in South Africa, um, to somewhere where he grew up in his childhood, and he's living out the front of his place is sort of open water, and there is there a kelp forest. I was like, a kelp forest? That sounds magical. And then you get the footage of it as he's kind of diving through and spending a year documenting the life of an octopus that he gets in some ways far too close to. Anyway, you can, just, you can watch it and make up your own minds. But the footage of him going through this, this kelp forest is like there are these... Like it, they're these golden ribbons that go sort of from the, the top where the surface is right down to the floor, and it's just brimming with life. And so it is kind of almost a little bit magical, this underwater world that you get to. But then about halfway through the documentary, it cuts to the footage above the surface, and it shocked me, because there I could see what was going on. I was like, I know you, that's just seaweed. On top of it, it's overcast, it's fr almost freezing temperatures, it's cold, and it's seaweedy. I was like, oh my gosh, so this is what's going on there. But looking at it from his perspective when he goes underwater and he's tracking the life that's there, it's incredible. The footage is amazing. And I realize, I guess in some ways, there are two perspectives you could take on this little kelp forest. The first is the initial gut reaction, which is to be like, oh my gosh, what a, what, you know, what a disaster. And the second one to think, wow, there is real miracle here. There is something really to contemplate. When it comes to the church, it takes very little effort to see it in that first light. The problems, the difficulty, the sin, the hypocrisy, all the troubles that are there. But in the words of poet and hip-hop artist Jackie Hill Perry, you have to fight to see the church as Jesus sees it. To think and contemplate on how it is that Jesus sees the church that he built and to see it for all its mess and beauty and glory within. To see the church as Christ sees it as the family of God, a group of people mid-renovation. And so my hope is as we open God's word in Matthew today, that he would open our eyes and our hearts to see the church as he sees the church. And then in approaching Christmas, that we wouldn't just think of the gifts to come that are physical gifts, but the gifts that are sitting in the seats around you that are meeting in small groups with you, the church that God has provided to be here as a church family for you. And so I'm going to pray that he would do that work in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we can so easily see what we don't like around us. And so we pray that you give us a deeper, a truer, and a purer perspective on your gift, the church. 
we might not gloss over the difficulties that are there, but to see what you are doing at your church, in your church, your grace at work in our lives and in the lives around us, that you might make us a genuinely thankful people and that we might be the church that you intended us to be, brimming with grace and life and goodness and all in the midst of healing from sin. Father, we thank you for this and we pray that you do this work in our hearts. Amen. What Chris read in Matthew here is what we're going to dive deeper into today. Now, we're going to be spending next year a lot of time in the book of Matthew. The staff team have been working hard on putting things together, and you're going to be hearing a little bit more about that just piece by piece. The first part was the weekend away. But as we get into our vision series in February next year, we're going to be laying out where we think God is leading us over the next few years as a church community. And so if you get the chance to thank that part of the church, the staff team, they've really been putting their shoulder to the plow. Is that the phrase? Putting, yeah, I don't know. Look, something like that. They've been working hard is what I mean. Um, and part of it is that we're going to be spending a lot of time at the feet of Jesus next year in the book of Matthew. So look forward to that. But this is a little glimpse of it. And Jesus is going to teach something here that on surface level kind of looks pretty banal. But as you dive into it, it's deeply controversial and disruptive to the culture that he was speaking to. In Matthew 12, 46, the context is his family are looking for him. And it's a short response, but packed with deep meaning. In Matthew 12, 46, it says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' ministry had grown so significantly that even his family couldn't necessarily get a slot of time with him. So here he's speaking to a group of people. His family are outside, presumably in a building. They send a messenger through, someone to, who can squeeze their way through to Jesus to say, hey, just so you know, your family's kind of all waiting for you outside. And then Jesus says, who's my mother and brothers? I tell you, those who do the will of God, those who are around him, are my brother, my sister, my mother, and so on. And what he teaches here tells us a couple of things. Firstly, this passage tells us, contra to the, the Catholic teaching that Jesus didn't have biological brothers and sisters, it says that he actually did. He had a family there, and they were around him. He had blood relatives. He knows what it's like to be a part of family. So if you find your family ga gatherings difficult at this time of year, just know Jesus knew that tension as well. He was in every way fully human. He was expected to keep the norms of the family. That is, when they ask to see you, they're expected to be given priority. And yet here, Jesus does something radical. He preferences the will of God over family ties. He says here, those who do the will of my Father are my family. See, when you become a follower of Jesus, the first thing you get is a new father. You're adopted in. 1 Peter 3.15 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, so he died in our place for our sin, not just so that we'd be forgiven, but so that, it says, we would be brought to God, that we would have relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we would be adopted in, as we looked at even just recently, the beautiful doctrine of adoption. When you come to follow Jesus, it's not a group of people with similar likes or aptitudes that you're joining. 
You were adopted into a family. I remember speaking to uh, a kid at a youth conference years ago. And the passage was on that very teaching, on the doctrine of adoption. And afterwards, he came up and spoke to me. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't sleep great last night, so I'm not actually that emotional about it. But it is, it is quite affecting. But he, he told me that he was a follower of Jesus, but also that he was adopted into his own family. And he said, what a miracle it was to have been twice adopted in one lifetime. What a blessing it was to be welcomed into a Christian family, but then welcomed into the family of God. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are adopted in. Your sins are forgiven, and you are given a heavenly Father. And so Jesus looks around at this group of people and sees an opportunity to teach them, and he says, I tell you my family are. I'm starting a new family. When you come to follow me, you get your sin washed away, and you get a new dad, a heavenly father. You are welcomed in. And this is radical, isn't it? It says, because your allegiance becomes first to God, even over biological ties. Maybe when you became a Christian, you decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. It was disruptive to your family dynamic. Maybe it did cause some tension or some worry or suspicion. Maybe there are expectations in your family about money or career or sex or marriage. And when you became a Christian, you started to break with that family tradition and you felt something of Jesus' teaching here. That to have a new heavenly dad can be disruptive to the biological family. Maybe you're rejected or mocked or even just marginalized because you wanted to follow what Jesus taught. But Jesus says when you join him, you you get adopted in and your allegiance is to your heavenly father. And as a result, every Christian becomes your brother or sister. Now this was extremely controversial in Jesus' day too. Family back then was everything. It was your past, your future, it was your vocation. You were most likely known as the son of so-and-so or daughter of so-and-so. That was kind of your equivalent surname. And so everything about your identity was very much caught up in family. And so Jesus is teaching something massive here. This is huge and disruptive, and it was something that the culture around really struggled to get a handle on. In fact, this teaching of church's family was one of the earliest things that Christians were mocked for by the the powerful leaders. The Romans, when they heard about Christians who gathered on Sundays, heard that men and women of all ages were gathering together. And that was extremely unusual in that culture. That men and women would be learning together was countercultural, but that kids and old people would be welcomed in as well. And the only reason they could imagine that these Christians were getting together was for some kind of debauchery. And so it's even recorded in in a a document by Octavius, written most likely in the mid-2nd century. He quotes saying this, And of their, this is the Christians, of their banqueting it's well known, and all men speak of it everywhere. On a solemn day they assemble at the feast, and all their children, sister, mother, and people of every sex and age. There, after much feasting, when the fellowship has grown warm with the fervor of incestuous love, it has grown hot with drunkenness, the conscious light being overturned and extinguished in shameless darkness. The Romans thought, well, the only possible reason they could all be gathering together and calling one another brother and sister is because there must be something debaucherous going on. Because for Romans, that was a driving impetus for a lot of their behavior. And so looking on the church, they were like, well, this must be why they call one another brother and sister and so on. And they were mocked for it. 
the culture couldn't understand why they would be like this. But the truth is that it's from Matthew 12 that Jesus taught that you were to be, the followers of Jesus were to be a family, to gather together. This family united not by blood, but by the blood of Christ. And the church was uniting people. Different sexes, ages, races, economic and educational backgrounds were being brought together under one new Heavenly Father as brothers and sisters in Christ. The church was God's idea, and He loves it. And when you see it as God sees it, it's not just that it's countercultural, it's an incredible thing, isn't it, the church? It's easy to miss how incredible a community we actually get to be a part of, not just here, but globally. A few years ago, I heard one pastor talking about the difficulty and the kind of the, the conversation blocker it was to kind of drop in conversation that he was a pastor. It's, it's normal conversation when you first meet someone to sort of once you've exchanged names or something like that, the next sort of question is usually, what, what do you do sort of week to week? And he was finding once he said, I'm a pastor, it just kind of ended things there. He's like, what's the next question after that? So he said he decided to get a little bit creative with this. He said one time he was on a plane and, uh, and was having just exchanging a small, sort of small talk with the, the woman next to him. And she got to the inevitable question, what do you do? And so he said this. He said, I work for a global enterprise. And we've got outlets in nearly every country in the world. We've got hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters. We do marriage work. We've got orphanages and feeding programs and educational programs. We do all kinds of work in reconciliation and rehabilitation. We look after people from birth to death and we deal in behavioral change. And she said, that sounds incredible. Where do you work? And he said, the church. And I don't know how the conversation went after that. The anecdote sort of finishes there. And I'm, I've never been quite bold enough to try it on because it, it really could go one of two. It's an all or nothing kind of move, isn't it? But it's not an exaggeration. What he says of Jesus' church is true. But you might be listening in online. You might be sitting here and thinking, yeah, that is true. Unfortunately, it's not the only thing that's true, is it? I mean, you could emphasize those things, but you could also say it's an organization that's full of corruption, abuse, hypocrisy. And that's equally true. So how do you decide which to focus on? Well, I guess the question from the passage here today where Jesus lays out the design of the church is, what is the church when it's at its best, when it's doing what God designed it to do? when it's doing the will of God. So you don't judge an educational institution by a few bad teachers because that's not the design of, the educa of our education system. We don't judge hospitals because of a few bad doctors. That's not the design of the organization. And it's true that some have claimed to be followers of Christ and instead have used it for personal gain and caused incredible damage. But they've done so in, dis in direct disobedience to what Jesus lays out here for his church in Matthew 12, aren't they? When Jesus says, who are my brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, whatever? Those who do the will of my Father, who are seeking to honor him, who have been saved by grace and now want to give their life to following him. So we know what the church is meant to be and we criticize it when it misses its mark and falls short of its high calling. Because Jesus' design for his church is actually amazing. 
And the church, when it's full of grace and the transforming work of God, is an incredible group of people to be a part of, isn't it? It's incredible when you stop and think about it. But even following on from that, you may say, well, look, even churches, when they're doing well, can still be full of of difficulties and personal hurts. In fact, you might have heard the phrase, "There's there's no hurt like church hurt. And when I hear that phrase... There's something to that to which I want to say amen. And there's something about that phrase that I don't love. I think what I love about it is that the only way to not get hurt in life is to not care. And so any group of people that you really care about opens up the possibility of getting hurt. And I think it's probably equally true to say there's no hurt like family hurt or anything else that you deeply are connected to or care about. And so I think in that way it kind of upholds the value of church. This is a group of people that are not just there in your life. These are people who are a family, and it matters. And so when there are hurts, they're deeper than, than other organizations that you might be a part of. But the thing I don't like about it is if it's used to, to, to almost express as if the church was some kind of uniquely disappointing group of people. Because the truth is, all of us, all of us struggle with sin, and all of us are a work in progress. Maybe the most helpful way to think of the church, this community that Jesus brought together, this band of sinners being being rehabilitated, is to think of it like a rehab clinic. It it would be odd to go into a rehab unit and while there are people, you know, kind of using frames to walk, I'm I'm not a physio, I don't really know exactly what goes on in there, but as people are, are going from, they're moving from having very little movement or control to actually maybe even going back to full or three quarters or whatever it is, it, it would be dumb to go in there as a person, fully fit, and be next to someone who's struggling along on a treadmill and just be like, look at this loser, and, like, and start jogging out some Ks like in front of them and, and mocking people around you for not sort of traveling forward. Because walking into a rehab unit, you would know that these are people who are moving from one space to another space. And obviously that takes time. It's quite understandable. The church one day will be, as we looked at in our last series, glorious and sinless. And we are not there yet. We've been washed free of our sin, but we are still a work in progress that God is painstakingly renovating. And so it is the case that as we look around, we will see and we will be a work in progress. That God, piece by piece, is changing us and conforming us to the likeness of His Son. And so that will mean at times that our sin will rub up against other sin and there will be difficulties and there will be hurt. But God, even in his mercy, can use that to show us even more grace, to show us the depths of his love. And even in the midst of this, the church, if we see it as Jesus sees it, is like the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, the dearest place on earth. And I can testify to this. Even personally, look, Almost all of my significant and life-changing moments happen in the church community that Jesus brought me into. The church is, of course, where I got saved. And I had a chance earlier this year to reflect on the fact that I've been a Christian 20 years. I was trying to work out the exact date. I knew it was on a youth camp, and I was trying to find out the exact date of that camp 20 years ago. But the church community was where I got saved. It was where I learned to love to sing, even though I can't sing, which is a blessing and a curse for the community around me. It's where I grew a passion to read for truth and for beauty. 
It's where I learned to be an authentic individual. It's where I learned, it's where I had to grow up. It's where I met my wife and had my family. It's where I learned to lead. And of course, it's where I've experienced some of my deepest hurts, but none so deep as Christ. Because what we forget is that Christ knows what it is to suffer for his bride, the church. That while he was teaching this, as the crowd were gathered around him, as he's saying to them, hey, you know who my brother, mother, and sisters are? It's those who, are, who do the will of God, the will of my Father. Even as he was saying that, he was the only one there who knew how much it would cost him to bring this family together. He was the only one there who knew that it was going to take him all the way to a bloody cross in order to redeem this family. And we're told he did it for joy. Look, in Ephesians 5.25, it says, as a command to husbands, as an example, that you are not above what God is not above. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loves the church. He's his bride. He's the family that he's welcomed you into. And so the final question before landing on somewhere concrete and in really giving thanks for some people in our community would be this. You might be sitting there thinking, I hear all this like, wonderful talk about how church is family and it's this, that, and the other. But what about when it doesn't feel like family? Like, I, I get, everyone wants to use family. You go to Ikea and it says, join the Ikea family, right? It's a very tenuous kind of, I don't know, allegory something, right? It, it's, everyone wants to use the idea of community and family. And so you're like, I, I hear all this talk. I see it on the page in the Word of God. But that doesn't match up exactly to my experience of the church community. What if it doesn't feel that way? I guess I would say just contemplate what he says here. He says here that the family are marked by doing the will of his father together. What makes church feel like family often is when we are serving alongside other brothers and sisters. And so if church doesn't feel like family... It may be, there could be many other reasons, but it may be that God is teaching you that the way you experience His design for family is as you serve alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. So we all have different experiences of family that we bring to the table. And some of those might change the way that we or might affect our expectations of what Jesus is talking about when He says church is going to be family. It might be the case that you came from a family where you received the most attention. It might be the case that you were the golden child, and so you kind of were the object of your parents' unique affection. And so family for you means a lot of affirmation. And you might be like, this, this church family isn't really providing that. Or it might be that you were the black sheep in your family. And so what you expect is the anxious attention of others. As you kind of go off the rails, you're expecting there's going to be a lot of focus on you and how you're going. And as you come into a church family, you're like, I don't seem to be getting that same kind of attention. This doesn't feel like what I know to be family. Maybe you were the sick child, the one that the family rallied around to meet their needs. And now in a church community, you feel a little bit like, I don't know, family for me was kind of a lot of people gathering around and getting around me. And, and this doesn't really feel like family. Or maybe you were the child who didn't get as much attention. Maybe you were the child who was after or over the one who did get a lot of attention. And so you learn family is kind of a group of people that you stay loosely connected to. 
And the idea that Jesus talks about a family being all in is like that seems a bit suffocating, a bit, you know, a bit much for me. The beautiful thing about God's word is that we bring all of our experiences under the word of God as we hear what he teaches us that church family is about. And here Jesus says, church family is about those who do the will of my Father. If you want to know what it's like to experience what Jesus is talking about here, serve alongside your brothers and sisters. If you've walked through life in a church community for any amount of time, I imagine you can resonate with the experience that the people you've felt closest to in the church community are those who you shouldered labor with side by side when you did something together. Maybe it was even outside a, a, a local church community on a beach mission or something where you partnered with other Christians or in the local church community as you served in a ministry together. When you serve alongside other Christians, as you look to do the will of God together, as you meet together even in small groups and you struggle and you want to actually grow together, that's when you experience what Jesus is talking about here of church family. And so if church doesn't feel like family right now, the question might be, who am I serving alongside? Who am I striving with to do the will of God together? Because at some point in joining a church community, if that doesn't kick into gear, it's not going to feel much like family. See, we are a community that are united by the love of Christ. We've been brought in. And the way that we participate in this church family is as we strive together to see God's will enacted in our lives, as we see His grace at work in our lives, as we love one another, as we serve alongside one another, as we press on to make more and stronger disciples together, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so we want to take a moment now, as we think about those who have just served us so faithfully over this season, we want to actually take a moment to thank people specifically. Now, I've, I've heard in uh, church context some language around like, uh, we don't thank people, we commend them in the gospel because, you know, thanking is kind of making it sound like it's giving glory to them or whatever. That, that is so uncomfortable. All right, I, the, um, the truth is we are called to be thankful for those whom God has gifted to us as a gift of grace. And God often gives us grace through people and through his church community. And so we want to thank some people who, over this last season, while things have been particularly difficult, have really, have really stepped in and served. And the first one I want to thank is someone who you might have received some thanks from this week if you're on a serving team. So Leah, if Jacob, if you are here, if you could grab those. Uh, Leah put together with the serving teams uh, a set of thank yous to send out and, and handwritten letters. So not like when you get those typed up, you know, auto robot reports that you get for like school or whatever, you know, with generic comments on it. These were personalized letters to thank people and to encourage the church in a difficult season. So can we just thank Leah and for how she has served us here? And again, we're not going to commend in the gospel. We just thank and trust that they have the humility to process that rightly. Um, and so we're going to thank some others. But what we'll do this time is um, as, I, as I just share their names, if you could stand and then at the end, if we could thank them together and then I'm going to pray for them and we're going to finish up our time together. So I'd really love to thank Tim who's been serving us here on music, if you could stand up for us. So Mum who's been helping out with City Kids and pulling the team together even as we expanded our City Kids program during COVID. Rob and Chris who've been serving as elders here through this season and putting in all kinds of extra time. 
for Marlon, who's been serving on music throughout this entire season, Mel, who's currently serving out in City Kids, uh, Jordan and Jacob, who actually helped us get online by bringing together the live stream, something that we did not think we would be doing this year, but just pivoted and got it done. Um, for Anna, who's been helping out on pastoral care as well and now on staff. For Holly on membership and for Jace as well, who's been, is right, is still on the membership desk. Is that, is it at the barracks? If we could just thank these people for how much they have served us over this season and blessed us in this church community. It's been massive. You can grab a seat now as well, guys. Don't let it go to your heads, I tell you what, gosh. Um, but we just, we are so thankful for the way that people have served. And on top of that, there are so, there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of ways that you in this church community have served one another in a difficult season. Even just by showing up, even just by being there, even just by meeting in small groups, encouraging one another. We have a heavenly Father and we are here to do His will, to love others and to serve them and grow in our love for God. I encourage you this week and today, make the deadline before you leave this building because it's hard to get out those doors anyway. You're basically trapped in here for the next bit. The kids are going to close it out there. It will be very tough to get through. But before you get out those doors, to personally thank someone, even if it's the smallest, just thank you for being there in small group each week. It's such an encouragement. Or to thank someone who served you in a unique way or a particular way, to be a community who are thanking one another. And in this way, we celebrate the vision that Christ had for his church. This is a family that he has welcomed us into. We are a mess. We are full of sin and brokenness. And yet we are being put back together by the grace of God. And so I'm going to pray and give thanks to God for the church. Father, we praise you that the church was your idea. And that you've welcomed us into not some vague global concept, but to a local community, people and faces right in front of us. People whom we would have nothing to do with if it weren't for having been brought together by the blood of Jesus. Father, I praise you for all the people who have been welcomed into this community over the years. And may we be a church who in this season leading up to Christmas are genuinely and humbly thankful to you for all you have done. May we praise you for what you have done in one another's lives. And may we continue to encourage one another day by day to serve you, to honor you, and to carry out your will by the power of your Spirit. Father, we thank you so much that you give us your word and teach us how it is that we are to see the beauty of what is your church. And Father, may we not lose sight of that, even as difficulties come, but may we instead be full of gratitude, knowing that this is the church that Jesus died for, that we were not ransomed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Father, may that lead us to deep joy and gratitude in this season and all for the glory of your name. Amen.